This episode is sponsored by Porkbun.com. Porkbun is a refreshingly different domain name registrar that's different from the other ones like GoDaddy or Namecheap. They've got low prices on hundreds of different domain extensions. They've got everything from .com domains to really cool ones like .pro, .dev, .xyz. Every domain name at Porkbun comes with tons of freebies too, like SSL certificate, who is privacy, DNS, URL forwarding, and hosting trials. Because why pay for things that should be free, right? All these incredible features and tools are backed by incredible support, 365 days a year, and more five-star reviews on Trustpilot from real customers than anyone else. Look, you can get a dollar off your next domain name from Porkbun and see why they're the best domain name register around by using our code. Just go to porkbun.com forward slash rocketchipfm24. That's porkbun, P-O-R-K-B-U-N dot com forward slash rocketchipfm24. You'll save a dollar on your next domain. As artificial intelligence continues to revolutionize our world, there's a critical conversation that we can't ignore, AI safety and security. And that's where HackerOne's AI red teaming comes into play, rigorously testing AI models to prevent them from being misled or exploited. With over 750 specialized hackers in their community, HackerOne isn't just theorizing, they're actively safeguarding AI's future. Just recently, a team unearthed over 100 vulnerabilities in just two weeks. So whether you're at the helm of a startup or steering product innovation at a large organization, it's time to prioritize AI security. Visit HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. Again, HackerOne.com slash AI safety security. This episode is supported by Trustonomy, an original podcast from OneTrust. Every good relationship you have, personal or business, it involves trust. But we all know that trust doesn't just happen, right? We've all lost trust in a friend or a brand or a product. Trustonomy is a new podcast that looks at true stories from the past to understand how trust works and what makes it stronger and how to rebuild it when it's broken. Now, you know, I'm a sucker for a good podcast that weaves historical stories and relates it to what's happening today. So I thoroughly enjoyed this Trustonomy episode and recommend that you check that out as well. Search for Trustonomy in your podcast player. We'll also include a link in the show notes. Many thanks to the OneTrust team for their support. Okay, so here's a question for you. How would you approach growth as a product manager? Well, uh, you definitely have to keep a close watch on metrics, so I would I would be doing that. Um, I would be looking at things like A-B testing, uh, especially with conversion funnels. I would try to optimize pricing models and tiers, um, You know, really kind of focus on figuring out which pricing is the right pricing model to use. Definitely talk with customers, figure out what job we're solving for them. So those are all great practices, but. Okay, yes. <laughs> so according to Ben Foster, who's the chief product officer at GoCanvas and a former PM at eBay, these methods will only get you so far. In fact, they typically only yield moderate results. Okay, and so that's what Ben thinks. What do you think, Michael? <laughs> I, I tend to agree with him, honestly. Okay, what would you or Ben suggest instead? So that's what we're gonna talk about today. Uh, leading with a product vision versus A-B testing into oblivion. One gets you big wins and some 
losses, obviously, uh, but the other just gets you moderate gains, but rarely a trajectory-altering growth. Well, let's get into it. Welcome to Rocketship.fm. Rocketship FM is produced in partnership with Product Collective. We are your hosts, Michael Saka. And I'm Mike Belsito. So you talked with Ben Foster about this. And my first question is, what does leading by product vision actually mean? It's the idea that you can optimize things honestly to death, right? You're you're only going to get so far. And after a while, you stop solving actual problems and you just start changing button colors. And so how he learned this was actually very interesting and it illustrates kind of his point very well. He was the VP of product at a company called Opower, which was an energy company that produced reports for homeowners that helped them reduce their energy bills. So I was a VP of product and UX at Opower, and we were a company that was delivering a SaaS solution to enterprises like utility companies. But the ultimate product experience was actually something that a consumer would use in the form of these home energy reports that we would deliver and that would try to convince them to save more energy in their households. Um, and when I think about the product development work that we did over the four and a half years or so that I was there we had this really high functioning product. We had a home energy report that was driving people's behavior change to use less power, which as it turns out, utilities actually wanted to have be the case, as strange as that may be. Um, and we could optimize the heck out of these reports. You know, we could, we could show a, a graph of your usage versus your neighbor's usage. We could show how your usage and energy has shifted over time. We could show how your energy use this time of year compares to the same time of year from a year ago, right? And so we had an infinite array of number of things that we could try to experiment with to make the efficacy of these home energy reports better so that utilities would get better outcomes out of this. And the sky was the limit. And I think in many ways, while I thought that that was a good thing at the time, what I realized in retrospect is that it was a little bit of fool's gold. You know, we kept optimizing and optimizing and optimizing these home energy reports rather than, um, you know, paying attention to the bigger goal, which is how do we increase the customer value that we're delivering to these utilities by solving bigger and broader problems for them that were far in excess of what any best version of a home energy report could actually deliver. So was this a blind spot or perhaps an immaturity on his part? Yeah, you know, I, I think a blind spot is probably a fair way of putting it. You know, if I could go back and knock some sense into myself, <laughs> my former self, I'd say, you know, hey, idiot, uh, you know, you need to have a vision for where you're going to go with this whole thing because optimizations are only going to get you so far. You know, you're going to either run out of, uh, you know, you're going to run into like diminishing marginal returns or you're going to run out of total addressable market and you're going to sell this product to everybody who could potentially buy it. But then where do you go from there? And, you know, it takes me back to thinking about the, the S curves of innovation where, you know, you've got an S curve for the product that you're working on right now, but you need to start investing in the next product that you're going to go build and the next area uh, of value that you're going to deliver before you run out of runway uh, for the existing product that's there. Otherwise, you're going to get into that kind of like cycle where you your, your company ends up being flat. And I think that, you know, I was reluctant to make that move because it was a little bit, you know, it requires you to take some bold strokes and, and you got to put yourself out there in terms of, hey, here's what I think customers are really going to need. Um, 
where there was, you know, some low hanging fruit that seemed like it was there quarter after quarter for optimizing our home energy reports. So, you know, I, I kind of look back at that and, and, and there was this moment where the where the CEO kind of, you know, came down on me like, hey, Ben, you know, where's the innovation been over the last you know 18 or 24 months? And that moment when I didn't really have a great answer to that was kind of like a tough life lesson for me. That's a tough question to not have an answer for. I could see why that hit him so hard. Absolutely. Yeah. He mentioned something else in there, which is key to the philosophy, in my opinion, the S-curve of innovation. Okay. Let me take this one, if that's all right with you, Michael. Uh, yeah, yeah. The S-curve of innovation, it's a model on how to illustrate the process of innovation. When looking on the technology life cycles, there's four distinct stages ferment, takeoff, maturity, and discontinuity. Ah, and these make up that S in the S curve, I imagine. Exactly. Yeah. Ferment is essentially the early flat stage when the most resources are being dumped into research and development. Then takeoff, that's the hockey stick growth curve that everybody talks about. Uh, the research is paid off and a new solution is hot in the market. I haven't heard anything about A-B testing yet. Okay. I don't think that's a step necessarily in the whole <laughs> grand scheme of things, but uh, but actually, I mean, maturity is when you generally see product managers coming in and maybe going to that A-B testing, maybe to death. Um, but you know, most of the major growth has already happened. And here we see incremental growth, if any growth at all. And then? And then there's that discontinuity or death. But this is also when you want your next R&D project to start moving into takeoff. And this is where Ben went wrong as he waited too long to push out those new R&D efforts and things stalled out. Well done. <laughs> well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I feel like I learned a little something there. Um, all right. So that was a lot that you just threw down there. Let's take a quick break for a word from our sponsors. Okay. So now that we understand a bit more about where Ben missed, what did Ben learn from this? I've done a lot of advising of companies post Opower and I've actually had the opportunity to work with like between 40 and 45 different companies as a formal advisor. So I've seen a lot of different data points on this and I've seen a lot of different companies who struggle with the same thing. Um, and what I've found is that a lot of it, it's very common for there to be a real emphasis on, um, on optimization. And I think that, you know, if you consider product management to be both an art and a science, the science is there, you know, we're doing that with AB testing all the time. Um, but the lost art of product management is the establishment of a really good vision. And to me, there's kind of like three really critical pieces that I've identified of how to do a vision right. And I think one of those is that it's got to be customer focused. You know, I would get in front of uh, these CEOs and and these founders, and they would walk me through at the whiteboard how they're going to disrupt X, or they're going to become the Uber of Y, or they're going to apply, you know, AI to to problem Z, <laughs> uh, and they have all these different like, ideas for what they're going to do within their space. And what's interesting each time is that the one word that often never gets mentioned as they're revealing their grand vision uh, is the customer, and you know they're thinking we're going to disrupt an industry. But the reality is nobody disrupts an industry directly. You disrupt an industry by solving a customer problem that matters and do so in such a way that as a result, you disrupt the industry, right? So, you know, I think that's number one is, is a lack of customer focus that, uh, that I see as being relatively pervasive across a lot of the startup community today. Uh, number two is I would say that a lot of times they're not thinking long-term enough, you know, and, and this is hard. It, it, it's hard to go do that. You know, you're a startup. You've got nine months of runway before you run out of money. And I'm trying to tell you, hey, you need to be thinking four or five years out. But I'll tell you, I'll tell you why. You know, there's 
you know, when, when you look at things from a short sighted point of view, you end up focusing your attention on those elements that are more superficial. So, you know, I think the reason that we do a lot of A-B testing rather than doing a lot of work on the future vision and, and kind of realizing the innovation opportunities that are out there uh, is because we've taken this kind of like lean approach of, you know, we're going to have to fail fast. And if it doesn't show results in the next two weeks, then we're just going to scrap it and move to something else. And I think the reality is some of those things that uh, that you really need to work on need to have that sort of more long-term attention so that you can then see uh, success indicators, like leading indicators of success now, but it doesn't need to be like revenue right now. Um, and sometimes just the fact that the way that, that companies get invested in and things like that kind of forces a lot of founders and uh, and heads of companies to have to make really short-term decisions that end up li- being really limiting for them, I think, in the long run. Um, and then the third one for me is that uh, the visions have to be kind of like bold yet achievable. You know, um, I heard this one time, in fact, I think I read it in an article somewhere and it's since been taken down. I've tried to find this article on the internet, so I wish I could quote the, you know, the person that I, that I uh, wrote it down from. But, um, but the, the quote was, if you're wondering what today's validation plan is for your product vision, then you're not thinking big enough about what you can achieve for your customers tomorrow. And I thought that was a really eloquent way of, of putting it, which is that I see that there's so much emphasis on validation up front that it kind of like forces people to to not kind of think about where we actually could go. Um, and it, it's kind of like the opposite of like design thinking, right? <laughs> like you're supposed to kind of think about what's possible and then back into what you can actually do right now. And to me, I think the orientation of you know visions are sometimes like, I see a world in which email gets sent, you know, 5% faster, like whatever, (laughs) who cares? Um, What about one where you don't need to have email at all, right? What would that look like? And how do you start to make progress towards that? So this shifts radically how you start thinking about pitching new product ideas. Yeah, it does. It starts to move away from the idea of getting buy-in for each feature and instead forces you to get buy-in for the big idea, freeing you up to make those smaller decisions without all of that stakeholder interference down the road. But what about validation? A couple things. I think number one is uh, there's this adage in product management of you've got to fall in love with the problem and not the solution. And, and I think there's a lot behind that. So you do do validation work, but you don't do it on the solution that you're proposing. You do it on the problem and the fact that it exists. So, you know, there is a problem that matters and people are fed up with the solution that they have right now. There, there's latent demand for something that we can go solve. And if we could address this one thing or deliver this one new customer outcome, then people would go, you know, would go nuts for that. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that if you can articulate what that looks like and you can defend that with real data, like you can't just make this stuff up, right? Yeah, you do have to have the, the data. Then I think you can say, hey, look, this is a real problem that's worth solving. Now, the next question is, why do we think that this might be the right solution for us? Or what are the alternative solutions that we might look at? Um, so you're not falling in love with a particular solution and you're willing to pivot on that kind of stuff, but you have a firm belief that there's a problem that's out there that's worth solving and that you're going to be in a position to be able to solve maybe in such a way that nobody else can. Um, so I do look for, you know, validation behind that and, and real data that can like back those claims up. And I think investors are, are usually pretty good about looking for that kind of thing as well. They usually like to have it proven through traction of a specific solution. And I think that the emphasis even for investors should also be more focused on the problem rather than the solution as well. Um, because sometimes in their quest to kind of get that early traction, they end up finding that they end up like, you know, 
built, you know, sort of like paving the goat trails that are like very, very inefficient for the business. And then somebody else comes along and says, whoa, this is really interesting that you've solved this problem this way. We have a way better, you know, fast path for how to how to deliver this. And that's why you sometimes see that a lot of like fast followers are actually the, the more successful business, right? You know, the the Facebook as opposed to, uh, you know, MySpace. So let's fast forward to today. He's now the chief product officer at Go Canvas, and he's leading through this philosophy daily. All right, so let's take a quick break here and let's come back with some more from Ben Foster. So did their approach change at all as they went through this process? Yeah, I think so. You know, we had a, what I would consider to be a little bit more of a sales and account led process before. Um, we were kind of like a sales driven company in many ways in that, you know, we knew what it was going to take to make the next sale. And there was a particular kind of feature that a customer was looking for. And if we built that feature, then maybe we could close this deal instead of losing it. Um, that's in many ways kind of you know, being reactive and responsive to the customers that you're finding today. But to me, what defines a product-led company is one where you're, yes, talking to your customers today, but in order to understand what your future customer tomorrow is going to look like, and you kind of are like, you know, you're, you're, you're uh, passing the ball to where the player is going to be, right? Um, so we want to build for the customer that we haven't yet met. And that's what being a product-led organization requires. And I think if you want to be a product-led organization, then you need to have vision-led product. And so this was kind of like the the uh, cornerstone of a, a cultural shift that I think happened at the company to move from more of that kind of like uh, other mentality into more of a product-driven mentality because people could say, okay, great. Well, if you're going to say no to this request that I have, then you have to tell me, well, well, what are we doing, right? And that kind of puts a lot of the onus and, and the uh, responsibility on the product management team to be able to define for the rest of the company where we're headed. Now, you know, it's, it's both a blessing and a curse. Um, but what I ha have really seen to kind of like shift is that people do now look to product not to react to the kinds of things that they're seeing from individual customer interactions, but instead to look to product to kind of set the path for where the company is headed. Um, and that's been a remarkable kind of like shift for the company, I think, um, that's been one that, that certainly I've really enjoyed and I think the CEO has really gotten a lot out of as well. Having the product team be looked at as a leading voice and where the product is heading, it's not a terrible outcome. And you don't have to actually stop A-B testing, right? You just don't rely on it so much. I guess it's like they always say, everything is okay in moderation. Yeah, well, let's break here. We've been working hard on season eight of Rocketship.fm, all about product failures. Yes, and I bet we'll hear some more from Ben coming up. Yeah, he's a freaking wealth of knowledge. So um, yes, we have a couple more stories from him that we'll be putting together um, from his time at eBay and even Webvan, which is a fascinating startup case study. And next week, I know we are in the holiday madness, but what do we got going on? <laughs> I think we'll throw up an old episode. We deserve some time off, don't we? <sighs> Thank you for that, Michael. I think we do deserve a little bit of time off. And Michael, I hope you have an awesome holiday season. And to everybody, may your eggnog be spiced and your, I don't know. I don't know where I'm going with this. <laughs> <laughs> Happy holidays. We'll see everyone in 2020. Thank you so much for listening to Rocketship.fm. It's your support that keeps the show going. Rocketship.fm is now part of the Podglomerate Network. If you want to learn more about the other shows on the Podglomerate Network, go to thepodglomerate.com. 
Rocketship.fm is produced in partnership with Product Collective, a community for product people. If you go to productcollective.com, you could check out live video interviews, sign up for our newsletter, be a part of our Slack group with over 6,000 product people. Just check it out at productcollective.com.